Hi friends, I'm Olivia. And I'm Katie. And we are Podcast by Proxy. Welcome. We're live. On air, according to my sign. On air. Oh yeah, I got Olivia a miniature neon sign, uh, and it says on air, and it's blue. It's so cute. It is really cute. I love it. I look at I'm it I'm annoyed every time. I didn't get myself one. Stare at it when we record, because it's right in front of me. <laughs> so Welcome cute. back, though, to the pod. I feel like because we had just like a chill week last week, I feel like we haven't recorded in a while. Yeah, it feels like it's been a while. It does, even There's though no like structure. Right, like we were here last week, but we were loosely here uh, talking about Netflix and stuff, which is great. But we are back with like a regular scheduled program, program. today. Yes. Dun, dun, dun. And a case suggestion. Pull back the red curtain. A case suggestion to boot. So thank you so much to Sonia for this one. Um... Do you know her personally? No. Oh, so if it's Sonia, we're sorry. Oh, yeah, for sure. Sonia, Sonia, I'm unsure, but thank you so much for the case suggestion. Uh, Yeah, before we do start, though, I wanted to cover a couple of things. I just wanted to shout out or just let everybody know, if you haven't already listened to it, um, Laura Palmer from the Island Crime Podcast Mm -hmm. has released a new series on the disappearance of missing Amber Manthorn, who is still missing from Port Alberni. Um, But Laura usually does like really, really structured, like investigative style seasons. And because this case is so um, like it's happening right now, it it needs the assistance and like the exposure right now. And traction kind of like, yeah, keep it going. So she did like a four part, mini series kind of thing on it where it's a bit less structured but it's really well done and you learn a lot so highly suggest if you've been following that case um to go and listen and then the other thing I wanted to mention uh I think I've posted about it on Instagram before and we might have mentioned it once before on the podcast but on Monday of this week that we're recording so on August 15th I believe was Monday yeah uh, Stephen Bacon pled guilty officially to the second degree murder of Michaela Chang from Nanaimo, which is uh, really close to where we, we are both from. Yeah, it's a really prevalent case. Yeah, um, Michaela was only 16 years old when she was last seen in 2017. Her body was found two months later and 57 year old Stephen Bacon was a suspect essentially from day one. Um, I would love to cover this case now that it has a resolution, um, but there was a lot of holdback evidence and there still is a lot of things that police have not been really like forthcoming with. So it's a little bit more difficult, but now that there is an outcome because he was actually originally charged with first degree murder and he was set to plead not guilty and the trial was supposed to happen in November of this year. And just recently, in like the last month, he changed his tune and came out and said he was going to plead not guilty to the lesser offense of second-degree murder. So I'm assuming there was some form of a plea bargain there. Um, So sentencing is set to happen at a later date, but ultimately, ultimately, he's a piece of shit. And Katie, we're all—I think we're all just just like sick of hearing about him. But um, yeah, I'm really just like happy for. Michaela's family that they don't have to go through a trial um and that oh a thousand percent yeah 
So um, ba- basically just... all that changes, though, is like first degree murder would have given him no possibility of parole for 25 years immediately. Whereas the sentencing judge will have the discretion for like between 10 and 25 with second degree murder. I'm pretty sure they're going to nail him to the wall considering was... how much we all know about this. I was going to say that and like this is the type of offender that I think has an incredibly low chance of ever actually being granted parole. Like there are some there are some cases where you're like, okay, like I could see it. Well, what's his likelihood to reoffend? Right, and like he's 57. So, hopefully if they give him so 25 he years, gets... he just dies in there would be my yeah. hope. But Keep I mean, even at that age, depending on what kind of life he's lived, even if he gets like 15, he might croak in there piece um so yeah i just wanted to highlight that um we do have listeners or at least one listener who's really close to this case and i just wanted to make sure that we you know talked about it i totally thought you were gonna say well we have at least one listener and just stop there and i was like god i hope so no i just i know we have at least one person who is close to this case and i'm sure if we have other local listeners that there will be more than one person who has some form of a tie to this case because again it is so local it was very a big thing and she was only 16 years old it was really really sad when it happened it still is really sad um but i'm just happy to see an outcome for her family because a criminal trial would have been a lot i agree it would have just been like re-traumatizing and like opening all those wounds again yeah uh i have a piece of news okay uh so, you know, in the Lindsay Buziak case, how there was the two people who were heavily looked into, which were the boyfriend and the boyfriend's mom. Yes. So, Shirley, the mom, Shirley Zalo, she has now sued Jeff Buziak for defamation. Oh. Like, there's still shit going on. And this was just as of, like, this year. Like, sorry for trying to figure out who killed my daughter. I guess so, so that sorry. she has a big Surely. real estate company. And if she, that people think she's a murderer, that's going to look bad on her. But she claims to have this, like, great reputation and be this, like, man woman about town. You'd think that if that was the case, then people would just rally behind her and support and not believe it. Mm-hmm. And be like, screw you, Jeff. Yeah. But we it's have... like, I think she's only scared because she knows that that's not going to be the case fully. I was going to say, we haven't covered that case, and I think that we probably should soon. I think I'm less intimidated of it now than I was when we first started. And, like, for full transparency, we are just very intimidated to touch that case for so 100%. many reasons. For so many reasons, but I think that... And we've talked to people that are like, I wouldn't touch that with a 100-foot pole. I think that we're in a place now that we could, though, and so I think that we can have that discussion off air. And um, 100%. But if you know anything about that case, you know that there's a reason why um, this one particular person has been brought into it and still Our hasn't family, been... we'll say. Like, right, and, like, hasn't been cleared. Like, if you are so innocent, there are things that you could have done to make it seem that to way. To clear your own name. And you just haven't. So, yeah, that's not shocking and... Um, that case is really frustrating for so many reasons Beyond, and yeah. that being one of them um the lack of just like cooperation there so yeah, yeah it's that's ridiculous wild. well if, you, if you're at all interested take a look into it on your own time and get back to us too if you'd be interested in hearing it 
because like we said, it is a big case. It's local. It's a lot of research. And we want to do that one right. Because to me, that was like part of the reason I started a podcast or was into true crime is because there was such an injustice in this case, I feel like. Yeah. And there's, it's like the someone knows something concept. 100%. Like like one piece of information could put this whole case together. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. I hate this case. Yeah. It's just very, it's solvable. Um. I agree. And the fact that it hasn't been is really frustrating. But again, there's been a ton of podcasts done on it. So if you're not familiar with it, definitely go take a look. I know actually that True Crime... lived like two blocks from... Well, I did. I live like two blocks from the house where it happened. True Crime and Cocktails. I haven't listened to them in a while, but it was like my favorite podcast for a while. And they covered that case. And they're always really, really thorough with their research. So... That would be a recommendation if you're willing to listen to like two to three hours because they have really long episodes. Oh, yeah. We they have like super, super, super back long. from Crime Con, I think. But really like, yeah, just Google it in any of the, uh, any of the bigger names. Let me just, I'm just going to pop it into um, Spotify and see if I have any like recommendations of podcasts that I like that have covered it. Not that that matters, but I don't oh, like... Oh, there's been a lot that I like that have covered it. But I think it's not that we like, it's that we trust. And then that's more what I mean. Like, that yeah. I, I don't want to, like, recommend a podcast if I've never heard them before, because I don't know what it's going to sound like, but... When um, I, this case is important, and important to us, because it's local, too. Like. Yeah, Morbid has covered it. Crime Junkie has covered it. Case File True Crime has covered it. True Crime and Cocktails... True Crime All the Time Unsolved, um, Island Crime. No, no, they don't have one on her. This case, no. though, like, it got Dark poutine, so I think. much traction. True Crime Garage, really like, take take your pick, really. They're, whatever style <laughs> yeah. you like, there's a podcast on there that's covered it. But, um, yeah, it's super local to us and very solvable, in my opinion. Agreed. So, we will switch back gears. Um, before we get into it, do you have any, like, non-true crime fun things to share this week? Um, I planted some water, like, little teeny melons in my yard the other day. Cute. Um, and I also, so those are called, like, sweet babies or something like that. Or sweet cuties or something like that. Like, really cute name. And then I got another plant called Lucifer. So, you know, both ends of the spectrum. Well, if you have any suggestions for plants that I could plant, like now going into the fall, I'm taking them Mm. because my broccoli just didn't work. Like I'm admitting defeat. The cabbage worms have destroyed my broccoli crops. Mine are pretty harsh too. It's not going to happen. Like I just, it's all leaf. Nothing is happening. I'm just admitting defeat. Uh, My tomatoes are doing really well. My peppers are doing okay. My cucumbers finally pollinated and are, like, producing little baby cucumbers. Oh, my God. Are they, like, little teeny weeny cucumbers right now? It's literally the cutest thing. It's the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life. I had to go out there. Sorry to everybody who's like, this is not a gardening podcast. Oh, Um, my God. Did you have to pollinate your plants yourself? Yeah, with a Q-tip. I did it, though. Okay. So, recently, because Simon's working with, uh, like, outdoor companies who learn slumber plants... His boss said, take the flower from the other plant and just pluck off the leaves, like mm-hmm. cut one off, the male one, and just like rub it around, swirl it in there. Yeah, so that's what I did. But what I did was I took a Q-tip. Yeah, I, I used a paintbrush. I, yeah, I swirled all the <laughs> sticky stuff from inside the flower and then I just like mm-hmm. painted it on the other ones. And it actually worked. It so works. I was you can tell just... we're not gardeners. We're like pollinating. Work. Literally, no, no because... What? 
it was like just growing all these flowers and growing taller and nothing was happening. And so, so I, I Googled it and I was like, I, what is this? And so it gave me the suggestion to pollinate it myself and it actually worked. I'm shocked. So I'm going to have to try and do the same thing with my pumpkin because it's not doing much. Okay, we've been... <laughs> I literally joke with Simon all the time, like, did you fuck your pumpkins today? Because, like, literally you're, like, having sex for your pumpkin. Uh, like, yeah, because that's what you're doing. Like, it looks like it, too. Like, the male part is literally, like, a little, like... Mm-hmm. It just yeah. looks funny. It looks hilarious. And okay. it's just, like, a running joke now, and I love it. So I love that you're doing that, too, because we've been doing it to our pumpkins. Well, if you want to follow along more of our gardening adventures at Plants by Proxy on Instagram, neither one of us have been very posty on there, but like maybe we'll start posting maybe us. Simon will. Can you post your fucking your pumpkins? Yeah. <laughs> Please. They're we only need... like maybe two inches across. We literally need a reel of this. Oh, and the other day I cut a branch off of my mom's Dara and I just put it in water. Yes. I'm um, also trying to propagate a new sna- uh, spa- yeah. snake plant. Sorry. I'm loving it. It's no. so cool. Look at it. It's actually working. It's yeah, I'm really I'm trying to do that with my snake plant right now because I want to make a new one for my bedroom. So I was like, oh, I'll just like snip one off and uh, it's it's doing okay. All right. Well, enough of our gardening adventures. Again, plants by proxy if you actually <laughs> would like to follow along. We're both just learning how to grow things. Oh, that, plant, that page is getting a decent amount of following. <laughs> yeah, we almost have 100 followers, everybody. What? That seemed like more. I just get the notifications of someone following. It felt like more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you want to check out any bonus content from us, early access to episodes, ad-free episodes, patreon.com slash podcast by proxy, and don't forget to follow on Instagram and like the post for this episode. And without further ado, we can actually get into our our content for the day uh, 13 minutes in. Can we? Can we? Yeah, so, okay. you know. Just do the damn thing. All right, so early Saturday morning on May 26, 2018, Gerald Aquinty arrived home at the East York House in Toronto, Ontario, that he shared with his wife, Rodri Estrada, at around 2 a.m. Sounds like a movie star name. It really does. Rodri I mean, Ge- Estrada. <laughs> Rodri Estrada, yes. I flicked my hair even though no one could see me. Her friends and family called her, like, Deary. Like, D-H-E-R-I-E. Super cute. Oh, Deary. Yeah. Oh, love it. Gerald is a prominent businessman in Toronto. He owns Tenuno Restaurant on Howard Street, which is, like, a very well-known Filipino restaurant. And he's super, super respected and well-known in, like, the Filipino community specifically. Okay. Yeah. So Gerald had been out that night at the grand opening of a new restaurant in the city for one of his friends. Um, Gerald had been working at his restaurant Tenuno until about 9 p.m. before he went over to this grand opening. Okay. He had called Rotary when he left work and let her know he was heading to the grand opening of this new restaurant and that he would be home late. Okay. Good when, man checking in. Yeah, he's she just knows like you're not dead on the side of the road. Yeah, he's like, hey, FYI, I'm just leaving work. I'm going to this party opening at this restaurant. I'm gonna. Or be even home just like I'm going late. out. I'll be home later. But it's like, thank you for letting me know. Hundred percent. So I don't wait up too. Yeah. When they spoke, his wife was doing laundry and watching her Korean soap opera with their three daughters <laughs> before they were going to head to bed. Okay. So it's, it's guess they went to bed at like probably ten. Yeah, seems like a pretty normal evening. And sorry, yeah. how old are their daughters? 
Uh, 14, 13, and 9 years old at the time. Oh, yeah. So, like, 10 p.m. It's fine. Whatever, 9, 10 p.m. Makes sense. Yeah. So, Gerald eventually arrives home again. It's, like, 2 a.m. when he gets home. And they had sort of a system of security. So, the front door had a deadbolt, but it also had an extra latch that locked. So, the front door could technically only be open from the inside. So, the usual routine, and I think this was because... I think this is important. Yeah, I, I think that this is because Rodri was often home alone later at night with the kids because Gerald was, like, working at a restaurant, and so they... It's like that little extra thing you get when you're staying in a hotel, right? Like, sometimes you just want that extra safety. Yeah, and so the usual routine was that he would get home, call her cell phone, she was a light sleeper, and so she would just come downstairs, unlatch the door, let him in, and go back to bed. That poor woman. She, like, doesn't have babies anymore, and now her husband's waking her up throughout the night. <laughs> she didn't seem to mind. It seemed like a really normal routine for them. That wouldn't fly for me, but I'm also not a light no, sleeper. Me neither. So I'm actually a monster if you wake me up while I'm sleeping. I'm Same. the opposite. Um, but this seemed like eye. super normal routine for them. So this evening was what he thought was no different. However... When Gerald pulled in the driveway that night, he immediately noticed that every single light was on inside the home. Creepy. Yeah, and this is, like, super unusual anyways, but even more so at 2 a.m. 100% I agree. Yeah. So, he does a normal thing. He calls Rodri to let him in the home, and there's no answer. After Strike two. Yeah, after not replying to any calls or texts, he actually goes and rings the doorbell, and again, no answer. So at this point, Gerald decided to enter the home through the basement. So the home's basement was under under renovation. And so he was able to go through one of the side doors that the construction workers used. Mm -hmm. Um, It was usually locked. But when he went to go in the door, it was like open, like it was ajar. Okay, that's like strike three right there, buddy. Just call the cops. 100% like this isn't looking good. So when, so he's like, this is very, you know, out of the ordinary. Not apropos. Doors open. He also, so he, then he goes inside and he notices that the door, that's like inside the home from the mudroom into like the interior of the actual yeah. house where they're living was completely taken off its hinges. Yeah. Strike 16. Yeah. Like, Sir. There are tiny red flags, like, every two feet, and you are just blinders. No, he immediately panics. Like, he... he okay, now like, he does. Yeah, he's okay. like, this is a problem, so... Okay. He runs I thought he stairs. was still, like, cool as a cucumber the way you were talking. I was like, um... <laughs> yeah, so... No. He runs up the stairs, and there's, like, kind of two different accounts. Um, in some of the research that I found, it says that he first checks on all three of his daughters who were sleeping at the time, and then he goes to the master bedroom... But any of, like, the testimony that he made on stand in court, he says he went to the master bedroom first. So that's the story we're going to go with. So he runs up the stairs. He immediately runs to the master bedroom and sees his wife in the bed with a blanket over her head, and he can see blood. So then he frantically runs to all of his children's rooms, like his daughter's. Yeah. And his oldest daughter, Jasmine, actually recalls hearing the door slam open. Like, that's how frantic he was. And that's how she woke up. And he finds all of his kids sleeping and unharmed. Oh, thank God. I think you were going to say 
same until you said the one girl heard him. I was like, oh my goodness. No, so um, yeah, they're all so they're all sleeping the and fine. There's no there's no harm to children. Um, okay. I didn't say this before we started the episode, and I should have given a disclaimer. Um, some of the stuff we're going to talk about is really like we're talking about sexual assault, violent assault, um, sexual assault of a corpse, like all of those okay. kind of things are in this episode. So just a preface before we get there because I won't be giving warnings every time. Fair. So after checking on all his kids, Gerald goes back to the master bedroom. And again, like I said, um, Rodery was laying in the bed on her back with a blanket covering her head and he could see blood everywhere. So he immediately calls 911 and he tells his children to not come in the room. Um, okay. He, the second someone told me, like, don't go in my room as a kid or a teenager, I was like, fuck that, I'm going in that room. Yeah, so he's like, do not come in here, absolutely not. And okay. he says when the blanket was pulled off of her face, it was really clear to him that she had been the victim of a heinous crime. Like, her face was brutally beaten. Ugh, okay. On the Crime Beat documentary that I watched on this case, which is, um, by the way... Crimes. Sonia, thank you so much for the case suggestion and linking a YouTube documentary that was uh, A plus case yeah. suggesting. Um, so Chef's it was, kiss. It was the crime yeah. beat documentary though, so I did watch it. And Jasmine, the oldest daughter, remember she's 14, recalls hearing her dad call 911 and him saying, quote, my wife is dead, her teeth are falling out, and she's been raped. Oh, God. Because you don't realize in that moment when you're so frantic what your volume is. Horrible. And your kids are just in the next room. Well, and, like, there's three of them and they're all upstairs. Oh like, God. you have to just do, yeah, like, they yeah. can't, like, usher them out. Um, Gerald describes okay. this moment as, like, absolute chaos with the kids are screaming and crying. He's trying to keep them calm and from seeing their mother in this state. Um, and then he's also talking to 911 who is asking him to do CPR on her. And he said it was like virtually impossible because she had a broken nose, a broken jaw and broken teeth with blood everywhere. So like this whole part was kind of caved in. The entire, yeah, the entire part of her face where he's needing to do CPR is all broken and crushed. Oh, Yeah. So... Yeah, he was like, he could barely even attempt to do it, and he said she was not conscious during this at all. So, police arrive, and they immediately take note of the comforter that had been placed carefully on the window facing the street. Like, almost to block anybody so from like seeing in the room. To like, yeah. Or, like, like, hung over. Like, for privacy on the window. Yeah, but I'm just wondering, was it, like, pinned up or, like, over a curtain rod? Or was it just kind of crunched into the window? I do not know. I just know it was, like, very carefully I don't know why that's an important detail. But I just, I'm wondering also, too, like, how long this person was in the house. Did the, could the girls have almost heard them? Like, Mm. yeah. Yeah, it's terrifying. Good Food is Canada's number one meal kit service that delivers right to your door. Good Food makes cooking fun, easy, and affordable. They offer different meal plans to fit your needs like vegetarian, clean 15, easy prep, and the most popular basket, the classic basket. Every recipe is packed with fresh produce that comes directly from farmers and with good food. You can skip the trip to the grocery store and have everything you need to make your curated meals delivered straight to your door. Sign up for good food today using the code FREEPODCASTBYPROXY to get your first classic box for free. 
That's free podcast by proxy when creating your good food account to get a classic box on us. Hi friends. If you like what you hear and you want to get even more content from us, we're officially live on Patreon. Patreon is a subscription service where you can get early access to our regular episodes, get bonus episodes, live Q&A sessions, and more. Visit the link in this episode description to learn more and sign up. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Podcast by Proxy. Katie and I are so appreciative of every single one of you for being here with us. If you want to support us even more, don't forget to hit the follow button wherever you're listening and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Growing the show means we will be able to invest more time into bringing you more stories like the one you're hearing today. Yeah, they also took note that all the drawers from the dressers had been pulled out. And, um... It's almost like to make it look like a robbery. Yeah, well, we'll come to find that it was a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Um, police guessed, though, that at the time that she was found, Rodery had been deceased for several hours. Okay. Yeah. A doctor pronounced Rodery Estrada dead at 2.30 a.m. on May 26, 2018. Police okay. also took note of the fact that some of her clothes and undergarments had been pulled down, indicating, like we mentioned, a possible sexual crime as well, which um, also rings true to the note that Gerald made on the phone about his wife yeah. being raped. He thought she had been raped. Yeah. Um, they found bloodstains literally everywhere. The headboard, the side tables, the bed sheets were soaked in blood. Uh, oh so, so police take an initial statement from Gerald. They want to try and get as much information from him as possible, like right away in the early hours of the investigation, kind of like while it's still fresh. And the forensic team is very quickly called in to try and track the killer's movements inside the home. Okay, well, at least they've called people in quickly while stuff was still, like, as is and pristine to hopefully get some evidence. Yeah. At the time of this crime, Rodri Estrada was 41 years old. She was working as a nurse in Toronto. She and her husband, Gerald, met online when she was still in nursing school. They fell in love and eventually got married, and Gerald described their wedding as a fairy tale and said that they had a smoke machine for their first dance to represent being on cloud nine. Oh, just stab me in the Did dead Did they, heart. like, dance to Brian Adams' heaven while Probably. they were in heaven? Probably. Oh and, like, you can see the video in the Crimey documentary. They, like, show a little home video of the wedding. It's like, yeah, smoke all on the floor. The, like, gorgeous wedding first dance. Absolutely stunning. In the documentary, so he describes her as incredibly strong, says she knew what she wanted in life. Uh, they eventually, of course, went on to have their three daughters, Jasmine, Alexandra, and Zoe. They bought their East York home on Torrens Avenue in the mid-2000s, and this is where their eldest daughter learned to ride a bike, their middle child learned to walk, and their youngest daughter was born. Aww, a lot of memories. So many. Rodery excelled in her career as a dialysis nurse at St. Joseph's Hospital and supported her husband at his Filipino restaurant. Uh, Gerald called her the architect of the family. I like that. She's a domestic engineer. She really is. Together, they hosted holiday dinners and backyard barbecues, and they often would, like, they were really welcoming of other immigrant families and really made them, like, feel at home and helped them kind of, like, adjust to their new life in Canada, and they just were, like, very active members in, like, the immigrant community. 
It was like the sweetest thing. The sweetest thing ever. I know. I know. And it's only going to get worse. Right. I know. I know. That's the worst part of all this. Yeah. The forensics team, they get started on day two of the investigation after a proper search warrant was obtained. So it doesn't matter whether it's the victim's home or the suspect's home. You always have to get a search warrant to avoid any issues of admissibility in court. Um, We don't need any, no, that wasn't admissible because you didn't get a proper warrant. We're not doing that. Or no, that doesn't count because you weren't read your rights. Yeah, exactly. Like, we just need everything we can get. Everything matters. Cross your T's, dot your law. So they get the search warrant. Day two, forensics comes to start sweeping. Um, Okay. They're pretty much immediately able to tell that the suspects had entered the home through the basement, which we kind of already guessed, but... There's a door completely missing, so... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, With the basement being (laughs) under construction, the windows were left open for ventilation, and so they immediately noticed that the window screens had been removed and left on the ground outside, and there was, like, really dusty, dirty, like, broken up gravel um, that looked pretty fresh in the basement, so Mm -hmm. the idea is that they climbed through the window and then probably exited out the door. Through the door. Yeah. Because of this, though, like all the dirt and stuff, there were literal full footprint impressions all over the hardwood floor in the home that gave police, like, a full picture of their movements inside the house. Like, if you picture one of those, like, little maps with the footprints, like, in Harry... I think of the one in Harry Potter. Oh my god, I was just thinking the one in Harry Potter, too, because I just watched that Harry Potter movie, but it's like, that's pretty much it, except for the footprints stay in the home. Like, thank you for mapping that for me. So from this footprint evidence, um, investigators could see that the suspect entered through the basement, went up to the back kitchen door where they came into, like, through the home. They go through the living room, up the stairs, into all of the bedrooms, including the rooms where the girls were sleeping, and then... Creepy. Yes. And then into the master bedroom. Oh my god, that's so creepy to know they went in and, like, looked at the girls. They yes. were like, no, they were that's there. not the adult, or that's not the mom, or no kids, you know, like, whatever it is, like, but still, the fact that they went in there and were like, no. Yeah. Thank um, God. Well, and gross. they did notice stuff was missing, so there was theft. Like, there was... Well, why wouldn't you steal from the teenagers? They were probably the ones with a computer, or a stereo, or no. things like that. iPads, tablets, laptops, so yeah. makes sense why they would rob them. Yeah. Uh, Rodery's cause of death was listed as blunt force trauma to the head, and it was believed that she was struck with something. Investigators found a crowbar at the foot of the bed that did not belong to Rodery or Gerald. The crowbar was 18 inches long, 5 pounds, and found right at the foot of the bed, also covered in blood. Jesus Christ. It reminds me of the, there was like a string of murders a long time ago with an axe. And it's, like, the thing was, is, like, the axe was always from, like, the people's homes. They didn't bring it. That part just creeps me out, like, yeah. in general. But so, I know that's not the case, but that's just... Yeah. Finding something just sitting there that someone brought into the house is, like... You came in here knowing what you were going to do if you brought that in here. Well, yeah, so the construction workers that had been, like, working in the basement were all asked if the crowbar was theirs, and they said no. So it was, like, you had to have brought that into the house. Yeah, that's... So they're thinking uh, that maybe they were using it so as a breaking tool and then attacked her with it, or maybe they brought it in knowing, or the person brought it in knowing. Um, 
that they were going to yeah. attack her. But either way, like you had a weapon of some sort on your person while you were doing that. So yeah, it's fucked up. Mm -hmm. Regardless, how are you looking at? So the forensic team starts taking DNA swabs and also checking the house for fingerprints. Um, any DNA samples that were found were sent to the lab for a rushed DNA profile. This all happened actually pretty like surprisingly fast. The police have been on point the last few cases we've told, I feel like, where they were like immediately just jumped into action. Yeah, the Toronto police is really redeeming themselves with this investigation. Good job, guys. Girls. Uh, while searching for prints, so they find one print on, like, the window in the kitchen in a really weird spot. So it was, like, the thumbprint was upside down, and they determined that it would have had to have been made, like, from inside the home if you were going to do, like, this and, like, pinch up to see through the window. So the window was below head height. So anatomically, it would have been like you're pinching and like grabbing the window like this from the bottom to like so like almost like there's a little ledge to and you do like, like hold a pull up and like pull yourself up. Yes, to do like a pull up and see inside. Okay, so it's like when you're a kid and you're trying to see out your front door or something, and so you're like yes, tiptoeing and like peeking over. Okay. Yes, weird. Okay, so, so are they? Are we thinking it's someone short? <laughs> well, they well no, because they the window itself was above head height, so they like oh, okay. no matter what you would have had to do it, but they, it they figured it was, like... it was I might have, but I meant above. Oh. Um, as above, so below. I don't know why I said that. They figured though that it was probably somebody who was trying to like scope out the home and see if there was anybody inside or see what was going on inside. Okay, even creepier, but okay. Yeah. Altogether in the home, forensics collected 46 fingerprints, but that single thumbprint was the only one that pointed to any form of a suspect. Like, this thumbprint... So outside the family members, friends... Was the break or... in the case. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Lead detective... So someone had been watching them, or spying, potentially, or at least peeked in before they broke in. I was going to say, at least peeked in before they broke in. Okay. The lead detective on the case, Mike Carbone, is advised of the primary suspect based on his thumbprint uh, and was also advised that only one day after the attack on Rottery, this person had been arrested and was currently in custody. Makes their job pretty easy. That's smooth sailing, it seems like. Yeah. 22-year-old Yostin Marullo had a lengthy background in break-and-enters as well as a history of violence, including charges of uttering threats. Um, and he had actually, like, just been charged two months ago with assaulting people. Like, th assaulted, like, three people Bruh. downtown Toronto two months prior with a pry bar and then was let out on $500 bail. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. So he was well known to police in the area. Um, he had been homeless for about three years before the attack on Rottery. He had no fixed address. Uh, he had been okay. staying at a homeless shelter on and off. He was in Which is fine. Yep. But it just, we're just giving facts. Yeah, this is just the lifestyle he was living. Yeah. It's explaining who he was. Uh, he was interviewed in the detention center, and he was advised that he was under arrest for first-degree murder. Uh, during the interview, he did acknowledge this, but he didn't really say anything else. Like, he made no admissions. He didn't say anything about it. He just said, okay, I acknowledge that you're charging me with first-degree murder. Cool. Or arresting me for what? it. We're not laying any charges yet, but arresting me for it. 
just like, all right. But so they got really lucky or like they did good work, I guess. What really luck as much as it is good police work. But there was only like 48 hours between the time of the homicide and the IDing of this print. So it allowed them to like preserve a lot of evidence that was on Yostin's person. Like he didn't, because he was arrested the next day and it was only 48 hours later, he didn't have time well, to get rid of anything. he doesn't have access to a lot of additional resources. No, but like he didn't have time to get rid of anything. You know what I mean? Like any evidence that would have been on him, he still had because he had no time to dispose of it. But I also mean like if he sexually assaulted her, her DNA would still be on him potentially. Like he may right. not have showered in that 24 hours. I'm right. just saying if he was living in a shelter... If he hadn't been back to somewhere safe to clean up and shower, and even if he did, if it was really quickly and somewhere, you know, subpar, he might not have done it thoroughly. Yeah. Yeah, so with the evidence on his person, he was found in possession of, like, several cell phones, and police at the time were holding back evidence that multiple cell phones were taken from the home. So, of course... We're not shocked that when they call the phone numbers of these missing phones. Well, there's four people there. I'm assuming they're the girls. and The possession, the phones that were in Yosin's yeah. possessions immediately start ringing. Shocker. Crazy. Yeah. Um, there was also blood found on one of the phone cases that was a match to Rodri Estrada. That was on his person. Okay, so now it puts you at the crime scene and it puts you in contact with the victim. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So uh, forensics also use a, an investigative process called sub- subtraction to match the shoe prints found in the home um, to Yostin's shoes, including prints that were found on both the sides of the bed and clothing on the floor. So now you're being placed directly in the room. Well, and if you have your her blood on you yeah. or on the phone in your possession, you had contact with her blood. Yeah. Or at least went into the room to get the phone. Yeah. And even if you didn't take part in it, you walked in there and were like, holy shit, she's dead. You still had an obligation to report it. Yeah. So there's a bit of a plot twist. The arrest of Yostin Murillo is not the end of this investigation. Oh, I didn't think so. No. So the forensics team, they had sent off all this DNA and they discovered an unknown DNA profile on Rotary Estrada that did not match Yostin or anyone else in the home. So now we're looking for a second second suspect. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Yes. So after Yostin is seen on, they like start looking at all the CCTV cameras just to try and track Yostin's movements in like the hour, day after this So if you like met up with someone. Yeah. So really quickly after um, he does this break in and murder, He's seen on CCTV camera at, like, a coffee shop gifting his girlfriend a stolen purse that he had stolen from the home. Oh, and so gross. police speak with his girlfriend, and they explain what's going on. They tell her that they think somebody else might have been involved, and she immediately tells them, like, oh, you should speak with his partner that he does break-ins with. And they're <laughs> like, okay. Thank you. Who was that? She refers to him as Beck. Oh, so David, like the popular eighty like nineties band. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. And David Beck. He was twenty three years old, and like Yostin, he was also homeless. The two had actually met at the homeless shelter about five months prior to this, and they had started spending quite a bit of time together. Um, their hobbies included partying, 
listening to music, smoking weed, and working out. So. Okay, then. I mean, I can get on board with a few of those. I'm not mad about it. I think that there might have been some other hobbies in there that weren't listed, but, you know, like, you know, break and enter. Yeah, there may be some that you don't really tell your friends about. Breaking and entering, robbery, things like, you know. Sexual assault. That I'm not like... super on board with, but I can I can get down with, like, listening to music and working out. I do that on a regular basis. I can do the music and a few other things, but yeah, that's about where I draw the line <laughs> a, a with this A few guy. other things. <laughs> I mean, like. I'm sure we have a few other common interests because I mean I'm sure we all have a common interest with some serial killer psychopath because you know what they probably like pizza yeah anyways so they had met about five months before they were kind of getting chummy and uh so the police interviewed Beck and he denies having any involvement in this um but they don't believe him so they obtain a search warrant to get a sample of his disposed DNA because he obviously doesn't know that they have found a second piece of DNA. They're just like, hey, do you know anything about this? And he's saying no. So they get a search Again, warrant. people, police and your girlfriend only ask you something because they already know. Yeah, we've been over this like every single episode, but like if we ask you a question, we already know the answer. And we're just Especially if it's you. a very like weird question out of somewhere. We're like, so by the way, <laughs> yeah. It's never just, hey, random question. What do you think? No. Super random question time. My hey, friend, want to play 20 questions? My friend just Danielle. One random one. I hope, Danielle, if you're out there, I hope you laughed at that. Because that's an inside joke. Um, <laughs> I left out now. Hit me up, Danielle. <laughs> anyway, so they get a search warrant to get a sample of his disposed DNA, which we've seen this before. They can yeah. get anything from a cigarette butt, a cup that you sipped and threw away in the garbage. Tissue, um, yeah. I always use the example from our very first episode on this feed of Holly Jones. That's how they got the dick wad. In that case, I don't even remember his name because he's so irrelevant, but um, we kind of explained the process in that episode. Yes. But... Uh, also, so they get the DNA, and they also begin surveillance on him. And they start to okay. kind of, like, check more CCTV cameras around the area, the area, like, that Rottery was actually murdered to see if they can get the two on camera together. So they do eventually get a discarded DNA sample. I don't know what it was, but they do get one from him, and they do another rush DNA profile on it. And wouldn't you know... The DNA that was found ding, ding, ding. on Rodri Estrada's body was a match to Beck. And so... Oh, really? Yes. Shocker. What? Oh, my God. So now the police, though, are beginning to think that there's two very different aspects to this crime. They start to believe that Yosin Murillo was potentially responsible for actually hitting, hitting Rodri with the crowbar... But that David okay. Beck was responsible for the sexual portion of the crime because only his DNA is found on her body and, like, only Yosin's DNA is found on, like, the crowbar and he's the only so one. So it's just, like, maybe they went in there thinking they were just going for a robbery and one guy knocked her out, but then the other guy was like, this is what I'm really here for and sexually assaulted her? I guess we'll find out. We'll never really know. Yeah, I don't really it's know why I'm that... so many questions. It's going that direction, but I feel like we'll like never actually really know because people oh. like this don't tell the truth. Or maybe they yeah, don't even just... know the reason. That could maybe happen too. Should... Maybe people should just stop sexually assaulting people. 
Yes. You're going to be infuriated at trial time, though. I'm just going to, like, throw that out there now. <sighs> Katie's going to be really mad when we get to trials. And so will a lot of the rest of you listening to this because it's just, yeah, some of the shit that is used for defense is just makes you want to scream. We'll, ha- we'll have screaming pillow time together. Oh, yay. Yeah. I haven't had that in a while. We haven't, no. Um, so, okay, so they do find store surveillance from, like, a convenience store. And it shows David Beck and Yostin Merlo together heading toward the home before the crime, as well as coming back afterwards together. So, yeah. And they're like, no, we have no idea. Yeah. We so don't even know each other. They, yeah, pretty much, right? <laughs> so they refine and interview David Beck again, but this time they actually tell him, like, so we found her DNA on her body and how is this possible? This is what we think how, happened. How did this happen? Enlighten us. He responds, I don't wish to comment on that. I don't know. Yeah, of course you don't. So when he's asked what happened the night of the incident, um, it doesn't really take him that long to crack. He said he was drinking that night and that him and Yostin had stolen a couple bottles of booze. Um, And he said that he was drinking in an attempt to stay away from drugs. That night, interesting tactic, but, you know, whatever. I'm I'm not here to judge people and... They're how they go about dealing with their addictions. I mean, I am a little bit. So that night, though, he says he followed Yostin because he had nothing else to do, and he didn't know that they were going to rob anyone, which, like, I don't buy that, but whatever. I don't, yeah, I don't agree that you didn't know. His girlfriend called you his break-and-enter partner, but you had no idea you were going to rob anyone? he just pulled a fast one on me and was like, surprise, we're breaking-entering. Fuck off. (laughs) Like, No. Uh, Yeah, within an hour of interviewing him, he was kind of trying to describe what happened inside the room that night. He basically said that when they got to the master bedroom, Rodri was asleep. They didn't want to, he didn't want to hurt anyone. He says they were stealing some change off her nightstand and Rodri began waking up. And then Yostin just came out of nowhere and hit her in the face with a crowbar that he had taken from a garage they had stolen from. And earlier that evening. Yeah. And after this, uh, he says, Yostin said, quote, David, I just killed somebody. We need to get out of here. Now, the police ask him, like, well, who took off her underwear? And he replies, I don't remember. Probably was me. That's not really a great way to put it. But okay. He's then asked if anybody tried to have sex with her. And his response was maybe. And then the police say, like, you did? And he replied, Yes, but I didn't kill her. Uh, bullshit, but okay. Yeah, I don't. So then David is asked why Yostin killed Rodery that night, and he replied, quote, she woke up. Oh my god. Now, I will refer you to the beginning of the episode where we spoke about how light of a sleeper she was. So moving change on the dresser would definitely wake her up? Would coming in, not the coming in the house and stomping up the stairs not wake her up? Because I... Well, I mean, if... Okay, so if they cut the screens and we're able to just kind of, like, tumble into the basement, I get that entering the home could be pretty quiet. Yeah. But I agree that by the time they... And keep in mind, it's two people. It's not just one person. Like, my dad is a light sleeper, and there's no fucking way somebody could enter their home and go up their stairs without him waking up. No chance. Yeah. None. So, like, she just... And, like, maybe you're right. Maybe they were quiet enough and then the rustling of the change, like you said, is was the 
thing. No, I agree with you, though. I think going up the stairs would do it. And it's hardwood. Like, I don't know if anybody else has ever walked on hardwood stairs, but they're not quiet. No, and if the house wasn't brand new, they're going to creak a little. I was going to say, my parents are so creaky. So... My mom's listening. She's like, I know, I need new floors. Stop calling me out. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Sandy. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, I don't know. That was just my... Yeah, they're talking like, about my like floors on the up, podcast. Like, would she have not already been awake, potentially? I think she would have been. Yeah, so... But then, like, maybe was she, like, already awake and laying in bed, so when they came in, they just attacked her right away? Yeah, I don't know. I just don't think that I'm personally willing to take this story at face value, is really all I'm No, 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 no. So, pretty quickly, both men are, of course, uh, charged with first-degree murder. We're going to jump right ahead to the trial. They are tried together in a jury trial that began on July 7th, 2021, so only one year ago. This trial was originally scheduled for sometime in 2020, but was, of course, put on pause due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay, understandable. I hear that. I get that. So it was a lot of stuff. Yeah, like everybody's life. Except for mine. R.I.P. to anybody who works in any form of benefits delivery program. You were overworked. It was a hard. It was a hard time. Uh, so they both plead not guilty to the charges, and they actually both testify on the stand in their own defense. Which I know we always say that's like rare or like kind of bold. Too though, it's common because they both want to get their story out. I think it's more like that. I was just gonna say, I think it's funny that we're always like, "Oh, that's rare" or like "low key stupid" slash doesn't happen all that often. And then I swear to God, the last like four or five cases, the person has testified in their own defense. But I think it is when you're looking at. The one worst person of committing the worst. a crime. Yeah. And yeah, like just the shit bags of the world, then yeah. yes. Yeah, fair, fair, fair. So by the accounts of both men, they spent the night breaking into garages in the neighborhood, like I said, stealing two bottles of wine, um, and then they eventually arrive at the Torrens Avenue home. Yostin Murillo testified that he believed the home was vacant and under construction um, when he entered the basement. There was also some testimony about looking in the window and seeing moving boxes, so they he assumed nobody was there. Do we know if because the basement was, like, unfinished or so to speak and being rent out, if they had stuff stacked in other rooms because of that? I think so. Okay, so I get what he's saying then, but yeah. not that I'm... I'm just saying I get the picture. Yeah, like, they had moving boxes stacked, the basement's all under construction, he thought it was vacant, which, like, doesn't really give you the right to break in, but I guess... Squatter's rights. We'll take it. Sure. I get it, though. You're more likely to break into an abandoned house or an empty house. If break-ins are your thing and not usually murder, it makes sense. You know what? It seems like it's a regularly... Yeah, his regularly scheduled program, so... Yeah. Get better hobbies, but, yeah. Better hobbies, better heroes. Let's just do this, people. Yeah, better friends, all of the above. Excuse me. Not you. I meant him. He needs a better friend. But yes. My heroes are fine, thank you. No, I could So are your friends. I could probably use some better heroes, you're right. (laughs) Yeah, same. He said, okay, so he says he wanted to steal some stuff from the home that he could sell to buy liquor. 
So he admitted to stealing a laptop and purses from the living room before heading upstairs and stealing an iPhone from a room where a child was asleep. He says he went into another room and stole an iPhone and then went into the master bedroom where he found Rodri asleep and stole her iPhone and a jar of change off the nightstand. Okay, which is what we already kind of know. Yeah. Yostin told the court at this point he heard Rodri utter the words, oh no, and says he panicked and hit her in the head with a crowbar that was in his hand. Which still to this point kind of makes sense in a way, but okay. He admitted on the stand to striking her more than three times and says it was impulsive. He said that she had started making noises and after he hit her, she stopped making noises. Yeah, but he killed her. Yeah. After this, Yosin says he left and told David Beck, we have to get out of here. He left the house alone. After leaving, he went back Mm. in for the pry bar that he had forgotten, and he noticed that Rodri was naked and claimed that she was not like that when he left. Beck was, like, outside on his bike, and Yosin says that he, like, acknowledged him, and Beck didn't say anything back to him. Like, he didn't acknowledge him, but later, the two went to a coffee shop together to drink more, and Yosin says he asked David why the lady was naked, and Beck replied, quote, I fucked up. I tried to have sex with her. Oh, okay. Which, I mean, is what we assume, but it's gross to hear and be like, yeah, that's what I did. Yeah. David Beck took the stand in his own defense and denied any involvement in the murder, like basically saying he wasn't even in the room when Yostin hit her in the face, but does admit to trying to have sex with Rodri after Yostin left the room. He claimed she was dead at the time. Now, keep that in a little box in your brain because it's going to come up in a minute for a whole reason. I don't think it's going anywhere. Well, (laughs) you're going to be appalled at the reason why this comes up again. Um, but like I said, in his defense, David said he wasn't at the, in the room at the time that the, uh, physical attack on her took place, but that he did try to have sex with her. And then he also stated that Murillo told him while upstairs, quote, we're going to have to knock them out if they wake up. Which kind of. And then they just as a blanket statement or like about the girls as well. No, I think just as a blanket statement. Okay. Yeah. So are you ready? In their, I'll ever be, I guess. in their defense, so the boys' lawyers, they mm, hired there's no defense. Brian Ross for Yosin Marolo and Greg Leslie for David Beck, and they argued that the defendants were too high on meth, coke, and booze to have the state of mind to constitute murder. Huh. They argued that Yostin Murillo should be found guilty of manslaughter because of this and that David Beck should be acquitted of all charges because he could not... Are you ready? He could not be found guilty of sexual assault because the victim was dead at the time the sexual assault occurred and his lawyer argued that legally a sexual assault could not be committed on a dead person. Yeah, I mean, technically it's abuse of a corpse. Fuck right off with that shit. I agree with you. Don't get me wrong, but I'm agree. I understand like, like, I what do, he's saying. I do too. Legally, that Just argument has annoying. legs to some extent and makes kind of sense, but 
fuck right off. I was so mad. Still no. I was literally pissed. The audacity. Her family has to sit there and listen to that. Take the L. We all know you're guilty. Yeah, like just... There's got to be a point where you look at your client and be like, fuck it. I mean, so I had a I had a prof in university who was previously a criminal defense attorney. And I think you told me about him. He would literally, like, try and convince people to not become a criminal defense attorney for reasons like this. Because... Most people don't have the stomach to do this and like to morally sleep at night and not have it torture them. And like some people do, Fair. and I commend them because that's their job. Um, but he was basically just trying to tell people that, like, while this looks great as a career choice on the outside, like the moral dilemmas that you're going to have to go through on a daily the basis struggles. is yeah. like. It eats you and kills you. Also, could you imagine trying to be, like, the spouse of someone who did that job and really be like, how can you do this? Because you'd probably have that feeling all the time without meaning to. And again, like, a lot of people or some people can compartmentalize and understand that, like, this is a job. This is my life. Like, this is my personal life. And there's a lot of people that are innocent. Like, a lot of people are innocent. That's the thing. And that, So you too. also have to try make sure that those people get a fair trial because... Right. Like, there are a, a lot of people component, that do genuinely so. need your help. It's just, like, stuff like this is what that prof was talking about. Like, yeah. I would have the most difficult time arguing this to a jury and... Because at some point, someone would say something, you'd be like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I give. Yeah. So, anyway, I just... Is an interesting. I just was like, holy shit. I don't I know love why that one was just so callous to me. Like, I get it. I understand that it's yeah. like, I understand the argument. I was just like, holy shit, that feels ballsy. It does. Yeah. In her counter argument, Crown Prosecutor Beverly Richards told the jury that they should disbelieve the convenient accounts of the men which separated them at key times of the crime. So she really honed in on like, it's really convenient that one of them just happened to kill her and the other one didn't see and the other one just happened to sexually assault her and the other one didn't, the other see. One didn't see so it's very convenient for two people who are committing a robbery at the wow, same timing time timing was really on your side guys yeah jeez instead she said that they should find that they unlawfully confined sexually assaulted and murdered Rodri Estrada yeah. She argued that while they may have originally broken in to steal valuables, once they found Rodri alone in her bed, they decided to sexually assault her. The Crown noted that injuries to Rodri's hands show that she actually tried to defend herself and that she wasn't just knocked out unconscious. So maybe they knocked her out as a result because she was fighting back. This is what the Crown is arguing. They said that yeah. when she resisted the sexual assault, the men beat her, breaking every bone in her face until she died. In total, the autopsy determined Rodri had suffered a minimum of eight blows to the head and had eight separate lacerations that were considered defensive in nature. And this is all with a crowbar? Yeah. Oh, fuck. Okay. Yeah. So what the Crown is saying is that, no, 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 like... You tried to sexually assault her. She fought back. Here are the defensive wounds that show it. And so you beat her to death. You broke every bone in her face and killed her. 
Gerald actually testified um, on the stand that, like I just said, Rodery was a light sleeper and would have woken up before the men even got to the bedroom. Now, with regards to the intoxication defense, because remember the boys' lawyer, sorry, I'm calling them boys and not men because they're just not, like, 22. I get, though, like, their ages at the time and stuff. It's like... They're boys. Like, they're not, these are not two men. I know they're uh, they're legal yeah, they adults, are boys. but they're fucking boys. Yeah. Sometimes you have to not look at the crime and look at the actual person when it comes to an age issue because, like, you have to look at their mental capacity, too. Yeah. Um, so remember their defense attorneys basically said that they were so intoxicated on a combo of liquor, meth, and coke that they didn't have the state of mind to constitute murder. So yeah. with regards to this, the Crown made note of many examples that night of them <clears throat> making like conscious, conscious choices, choices. Um, such as placing the blanket over the window to avoid detection. They actually also spoke to the defendant's own testimony that they didn't think anyone was home due to renovations and the presence of moving boxes, like... So you clearly looked in the house and made a decision to go in. You're making calculated decisions. And then you made decisions. a decision to go upstairs yeah. and also bring a weapon in just in case. Yeah, and, like, what the Crown's saying, which completely makes sense, is, like, if you're that intoxicated that you're... that you couldn't possibly have, like, known that you were killing somebody or, like, had the state of mind to constitute murder, then... How is it that you're looking in a window and can make these calculated decisions on whether to enter a home or not based on what it looks like? Yeah. Um, so the jury's... Uh. Yeah. The jury's also played the CCTV footage of the men from the store that basically... It just shows them walking, like, one direction together and then the other direction together. But it just shows that they were very much together at the same time. Oh, and they're walking and riding a bike and it's like there's no obvious signs of impairment. Yeah, and if you're watching, like, a video of someone riding a bike and you know they're impaired, you can tell. Yeah, no, they were just literally just scooting along. Yeah, you can't ride a bike perfectly straight. Yeah. Uh, now, something that the jury didn't actually hear, which I kind of mentioned at the top of the episode, but I will uh, I'll just say it again. Two months prior to Rodri Estrada's murder, Yostin Morello was arrested and charged for what the news called a violent rampage where he was basically running around downtown Toronto with a pry bar and a pipe and struck at least three different people, including a woman and a security guard. Um, he was charged and arrested <laughs> okay. that night and he was released two days later on $500 bail. So, but the jury didn't okay. hear that because it wasn't related. Well, and it could be, like, it's, like, defamatory evidence, right? Like, it could. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. But, like, just. I know. Go ahead. I know. Like, attacked her in the exact same way, but not related. It's like, no, guys, it's fine. Yeah. Cool. Just nothing to do with one another. Yeah. This, uh, this trial lasted a total of seven weeks, and the jury deliberated for five days, returning a verdict of Whoa. guilty of first-degree murder and sexual assault. I thought that was a long time, too, because there's been a few cases recently where it's like, oh, jury deliberated it's for like five, five hours. hours. Yeah. Five. Like we both said five hours. <laughs> yeah. Five full days. Um, but they did return a verdict of guilty for both first-degree murder and sexual assault. Now, Justice Ian McConnell, sorry, Justice Ian McDonnell, not Ian McConnell. I can see. That's a tough one. He ordered a stay- <laughs> On the sexual assault charge, 
because of how the jury's verdict was written. So, okay, you may need to explain this to me. In the criminal code, any murder that involves sexual assault or unlawful confinement is automatically Mm. considered a first degree murder. My least favorite sounding charge unlawful confinement. Yeah, or forcible confinement, any of those. Yeah. So, in the criminal code, if a murder involves either sexual assault or an unlawful confinement, it's automatically considered a first degree murder. Because okay. the jury yes. the jury wrote their verdict as if Rodery was murdered while the defendants were committing a sexual assault. So that mm. already constitutes first degree murder and makes it a first degree murder. So the sexual sure assault does. charge essentially just becomes moot. Yeah. Yeah. So you've already obtained a maximum sentence essentially. So Yeah, like part like the way basically just the way that the jury said presented the facts and said it happened yeah meant that Uh, it just falls under first degree murder so the sexual assault charge is stayed um but either way both men were sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years they were given credit for the time they had already served which means at the time of sentencing they would have to serve like 22 years before they would be eligible to apply for parole part of their sentencing conditions as well both men are required to submit uh, dna to a national data bank and in his decision the judge wrote that what happened to rodery is the stuff of nightmares he called the attack on her deeply disturbing and stated it undermined community perception of the family home as a place of safety and security both men were given an opportunity to speak after sentencing um, Yostin Murillo made a brief apology for the suffering he had caused. He definitely made a statement. David Beck said nothing. He did say, like, in his testimony on stand that, you know, his actions were disgusting and he wished he could take them back and yada, yada, yada. But at the sentencing hearing, he did not say anything. Okay. Now, you might be wondering why a sentencing hearing is even required for a first-degree murder charge because it's an automatic sentence like there isn't really anything to discuss it's automatic sentence with no possibility of parole for 25 years no matter what however sentencing hearings still occur to give the family or people like victim impact to give victim impact statements it gives people yeah close, there's a lot of yes closure procedures that happen in there for all parties involved so it's more for the family and people close to the victim than it is for any other reason because like there's no decision being made it's already there's an automatic minimum or like a mandatory minimum um but it gives the family a chance to speak and like katie said like have some closure um So, of course, her family and friends were given the opportunity to give victim impact statements about how the actions of Morello and Beck have affected them. Rodery's husband, Gerald, told the court that while the men may have gone to his house to steal valuable items that night, they ended up stealing, quote, the life of my wife who worked tirelessly as a mother, wife, and a dedicated nurse. He also said, quote, I have a hard time remembering my wife's graceful face because the only thing I see is her face when I found her lifeless, her face beaten up and swollen. He handed his victim impact statement by looking over at Rodri's parents and his children and said, I am so sorry I was not able to protect Deary. I hope you can forgive me. I'm sorry. That's so sad. That was really hard for me to get that through. That he had to apologize. To, oh my God. Yeah. Devastating. That was a hard one. I almost cried, guys. I 
can see it. I can hear it. I can feel it. I know. This was a tough one. This was a really hard one. Because even though, like, I don't know, cases like this, it's like, okay, you know, they were living sort of a transient lifestyle. They were known break and enters. It's not super shocking, per se, that these two individuals did what they did. It's still just, like, it's so callous and so many people were affected and... I don't know. They just seemed like such lovely people. And this one was really difficult for me. Um, so two of her children. I don't know if all three of them gave victim impact statements. I could only find two of them, though. And full disclosure, I had Maybe an, one of them didn't. I literally like had an just... impossible time finding any actual poor transcripts <laughs> for this case. I had to really piece it together. Um so her two eldest daughters, at least, did make impact statements. Her second eldest daughter said she thinks every day about how she didn't tell her mother I love you before going to bed that night. And then she said, quote, I think about how she won't be here to watch us become adults and start our own families. I think about how I was never able to thank her for all that she's done for me. I could not imagine getting married and having kids without my mom around. Mm-hmm. I called my mom six times today. Just in case anyone's wondering, I decided to keep tallying. How many times did she call you back? Well, actually, we had you? a total of six phone calls, and she came over. So I probably called her three times. She probably called me three times, and then she came over to get something, and it's just, like, very... Yeah, but you and your mom are, like... A little bit codependent. Very connected. <laughs> yeah, I was Anyways, trying to be nice by saying... Super, something. super sad. Like, all of these victim impact statements are just devastating to read how... Her loss has affected, like, not only her family, but the whole community. Her co-workers at the dialysis unit at St. Joseph's Hospital recalled her joyful presence as a team leader and her ability to welcome and calm, like, even the most stressed patients. They said, quote, she chose a profession centered on care and comfort, but had her own life inhumanely terminated. We will never fully recover. We cannot nor will ever under understand the evil acts that took her from us. Her murder was not only devastating to her family and friends, but to the nursing profession as a whole. So, yeah, just rip my heart out of my chest. This is such a sad case. I mean, they're all sad. Somebody always loses their life every time we speak on Tuesdays. When a family lost someone valuable and a community lost someone but this one was just super devastating because, like, when I, and when I think about it, too, I'm like, over a jar of change like if what you're saying is true yeah you murdered this woman over a jar of quarters why don't you just run she's just waking up she probably wouldn't even see you yeah like if just the story that you run. presented is true like there were so you know what the podcast we've talked about it before um a mil- there were a million other choices there that you could have made um that's what the podcast is called a million other choices if you <laughs> If you didn't get there, it's uh, Taylor Toller's Aunt Kim from a case that we did previously a while back. Um, but yeah, like there were so many other options if if what you're yeah. saying is true. And I keep saying that because I don't fully buy and it. And neither I, did the I jury. Even, I even almost get the, like a moment of panic. Yeah, I could see knocking someone out. But knock her out and leave. I'm like, that's not what it sounds like. Like everything no, I've heard you is know like, what I mean? sorry. Like, but... Even if they had to take it to violence. It didn't go this way. Yeah, brutal. So that is the brutal murder of Rodri Estrada. Thank you so much for the case suggestion, Sonia. And um, if you, too, would like to suggest a case to us to cover on the podcast, 
Please send us an email at podcastbyproxy at gmail.com or a DM on Instagram is fine too. I always find them there. Um, if you're a Patreon member, I will get to your case suggestion sooner for sure. I will definitely prioritize it. Um, but yeah. Well, that was great. You did a good job. Thank you. You've done good. We will be back again next week. It's Katie's week. Um, yeah. That's it. Would you rather, because I have two on the go, and now that I have a little bit of time, would you rather one about one person or about two people? Two people. Okay. Let's keep out that party party going. We'll have a two-parter. Two people are... So you want two people to be hurt instead of one? Great. I mean, I just... You pick. Rock, paper, scissors. Either, like we just mentioned, either way, it's horrific, so... I have to yeah, go buy... Yeah, and, and I mean, I'm going to tell you both eventually, so... Yeah, I have to go buy my dog new food now before the store closes because I just realized I have no wet food for her <laughs> breakfast and they close in less than two hours, so I got to get moving, but... Yes, you do, and I'm going to go have dinner. Lovely to chat with everybody. We love you so much. Thanks for being here. If you can think of, like, a name for our fans, please send it to us. Dipsticks. The Dipsticks? Oh my god, I'm obsessed. Okay, <laughs> well, never mind. We don't Oh my god, you know what's so funny? I literally was sitting here drawing a shirt with like a dipstick by proxy thing on it. Join the dipstick squad at podcast by proxy. Maybe we'll just change the podcast name entirely. Anywho. Bye. Hey, we might. Bye. I'll call you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. 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 How do I stop this shit? I'll stop it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fuck me.